This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our remote pre-Thanksgiving, everyone is off in a different corners, uh, pseudo studio. Uh, we have our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Uh, Mike is off baking a turkey, probably, or at least that's what I'll be doing before too long. Um, but we've gathered because this is like the slowest work week and the uh, biggest time for movie releases. Uh, not just movies that are out in theaters, but also a bunch of them that are kind of starting to show for critics and reviews are coming out. Um, and everything is really rushing ahead of the Critics Awards that are going to come really fast as soon as Thanksgiving is over. Um, and then there's also movies in theaters. Uh, and we're going to have an interview that Joanna did with Ryan Johnson, the director of Knives Out, which is, I think, probably your best bet for like a big take your family to this Thanksgiving release, uh, which we can oh. talk more about. I would say so, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Who needs Frozen 2 when you've got a murder mystery? Great pick. Yeah. Um, well, and Joanna, you, we can talk about it more, but you talked to Ryan at um, Fantastic Fest, which seems like the ideal circumstances for any interview, really. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of queso and tequila floating around you the can, system. You can as smell we're it in the audio. <laughs> yeah. But first, so uh, Richard, as we record this, you've had you have a really busy day of reviews. Uh, both Little Women and Nineteen Seventeen reviews are going to go up, which I can't think mm-hmm. of a of a less apt pair. Uh, <laughs> they're they're both set during wartime, but I can't really think of anything else they have to do with each other. Uh, both of them star a lot of English people. That's true, and like beautiful young men in Timothy Chalamet and George McKay. Right. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about Little Women first, because Joanna has seen that as well. I still have not, tragically. Um, Richard, you, I, I feel like you, and we talked about this in the podcast, you were famously not in love with Lady Bird, whereas the rest of us were, and we shamed you for it. Uh, and you might be in for another round of that on Little Women, because you liked it but didn't love it. Yeah, I mean, I again, I, I did like Lady Bird. I just didn't uh, <laughs> view it as um, maybe favorably as other people. But yeah, Little Women um, has so much to recommend it. It looks beautiful. There's a great Alexander Desplat score. Saoirse Ronan's amazing. Florence Pugh's amazing. Uh, and yet, amid all that, like I just found the movie to have some pacing problems. You know, she chooses, Gregory chooses in her adaptation, this kind of bifurcated, dual timeline, sort of future and past um, that works cinematically to some extent, but it also kind of reveals things in the future before they've happened in the past. And so it kind of undercuts dramatic stakes. And then also it just moves really quickly. And I feel like it was partly because, you know, a lot of people when they adapt things that they love, like Gerwig loves Little Women, the the, the Louisa May Alva book, she wants to put everything in there. And for a two hour movie, it just feels a bit overstuffed and she can't really dedicate enough time to specific moments. Um, so yeah, that was those were kind of my, my bigger problems with the movie. And you are, you have read the book Little Women, but it's been a while. Like you're somewhat familiar with it, but not an expert. Yeah. I mean, you can't really grow up in Massachusetts with sort of bookish parents. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, my sister had a birthday party at Louisa May Elcott's house once. So, Oh my God. I want um, her review of this movie but, too. You know, it's been a long time since I've read the book and actually it's been long ago, enough ago that um, I think my dad read it to us. Um, wow. So, yeah, forgive me if my I'm not totally up, although I did listen to the episode with Radika that you guys did. Um, so, yeah, and I think that in, in some ways that I was both familiar with the text in terms of I have read it at some point and I've seen um, two of the movie adaptations prior to this. Um, 
you know, that helped, but also that I was a little bit less familiar than, you know, really, really intense fans also helped. And, and I think what I saw is that I worry a bit that the people who aren't, you know, really kind of clued into the story are going to be a little bit lost. I've spoken to at least one journalist who, um, you know, he's from England and, and he, he didn't grow up reading that book. And um, he was a bit confused as to what was really happening, I guess. So I'm, I'll be curious to see what the reaction is um, as people get to see it, which, you know, won't be for a month. Yeah. Um, Joanna is a Little Women uh, diehard. Uh, where, uh-uh, you? Yeah. <laughs> Hold on to your hats and glasses. I agree with Richard completely. Oh, no. Uh, on, and, and tell me what you think about this, Richard. I feel like if this movie were just edited differently, mm-hmm. um, it would have worked. I felt stressed out the whole movie, and it's, it's something to do with the pacing. The... Uh, I don't feel like it's a spoiler to talk about the conceit of how this movie is is constructed. No. Um, which is that a lot of the childhood anecdotes that, that we are very familiar with that usually find their way into the films uh, are told in flashback. And so we pick up sort of with Joe already in New York and Amy already in Europe. And then we flash back to the things that we know. And the flashing back and forth... Uh, is as someone who's been watching a lot of the TV show Lost, I know how a flashback should go in and out, and it's just not always clear. So, for example, once again, Friends already spoiled this plot point, but Beth dies in uh, <laughs> Little Women. So, Greta Gerwig, I think, like, kind of smartly juxtaposes the two Beth illnesses. You get Beth ill, you know, the first time when she, like, makes it through, and then Beth ill when she doesn't make it. But it's it's edited very confusedly, and the guy behind me is like, so you, the guy behind me is like, wait, I thought she made it, you know what I mean? Like, he was so confused, and he wasn't, like, not paying attention. It's mm. just confusing I think um, you know for those of us who have read the book it's not um, it's it's not that confusing but but even so I felt myself uh, and then I felt myself just like anxious the whole time and I don't know if that's what she was going for but that's the feeling I got from watching Little Women was a lot of anxiety there's a lot that I really loved Florence Pugh I think um, we talked about this about how the film really is trying to do something with Amy that none of the other films or adaptations have done before and I think it, it very much succeeds with that character in isolation. Um, and she's the most convincing, I think, between childhood and adulthood, the difference. Like, you're never in question about which version of Amy you're watching. Um, hers is the most convincingly different performance. Um, and it solves a lot of the, like, <laughs> narrative problems if you already have not narrative problems with Little Women, but the narrative frustrations people have with Little Women. If you already have Joe, if you start with Joe and Professor Bear and you start with Amy and and Teddy and then you flash back to this other stuff, Mm. you're maybe not as attached to, uh, you know, another uh, coupling as you might be. And so um, I think that's incredibly smart. A lot of these choices are incredibly smart, but the end result, um, yeah, it felt felt more like jumbled and frenetic than than I would have liked it to be. It's a beautiful, it looks beautiful the tracy led stuff is great and and it, i i will not spoil the ending because it is um <clears throat> very interesting and clever and actually quite emotional she does something really interesting with the ending and i won't talk about that but that i think is a triumph what she does at the very end of the film it's just a, some of this you know editing stuff is just like i yeah it, it didn't land for me Interesting. I should note that you guys, I mean, the reviews are just starting to come out, but I do feel like we've been hearing weeks and weeks of people raving about it. So it's not like, I don't think you guys are way off base as you're talking about other people being confused, but there does seem to be a slightly warmer consensus building around it than what you guys are saying here. I mean, I, once again, I will agree with Richard. I liked, but didn't like, I I liked a lot, but didn't love. And maybe I just went in with too high expectations because I did love Lady Bird and I do love Little Women. um, And, you know, I do love this cast and all sort of stuff. So maybe I got a little little too uh overexcited about it um but i mean that's i think that like we've spoken about that a lot on on this show and and it's something that i think about more and more the you know the the more years i do this job um congrats on almost six years katie Um, wow and you um, too and almost you joanna (laughs) yeah um is is that like is really how you when you see something and how how it changes things i mean i saw this movie uh i was in los angeles um doing something for work and I happened to get invited to a screening that was at the um, Directors Guild Theater but it was a a SAG screening and the whole cast was there and everyone in the room was so excited and I had been, you know, anticipating this movie since it was announced and I think that 
you know, this movie, which is lovely, mostly, um, maybe couldn't hold up to that um, anticipation. So I just, you know, I'm, I'm curious what people will think when they go, you know, with their families over the holidays or on their own or what, you know, whatever configuration when, when, when the sort of stakes feel a little bit lower, um, mm. they might, I think that maybe you could be more forgiving of what Joanna and I are seeing as some, some missteps. And, you know, I think the another thing about it is that over the years I've, gradually become a somewhat reluctant uh, convert to the idea that like m- maybe novels should be miniseries and short stories should be movies. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Because there are so many fine touches that Gerwig gets out of this film and, and you know, these these lovely moments that you wish that she could just kind of linger on more, but due, due to the constraints of not wanting to have a four-hour movie, n- not even a three-hour movie, um, she, she can't really linger the way that... Um, it feels almost like she wants to. So, you know, I'm imagining the, you know, four night glossy HBO version of this. Yes. And I think it's a knockout. Same director, <laughs> I, same cast, everything. I think oh it's God, you know, really great. I agree. And then we'll have like the Beth dies episode and the, you know, Joe and Laurie episode. Anyway, um, I completely agree. I, I, one last thing I will say, and I think I, I'm really excited to you. Uh, see what you think of it, Katie. But you know how the end of Lady Bird is about, it's about like a young woman going to New York. And I think like my memory of you, Katie, is that as someone who went to New York as a young woman to like study, like this is something you really responded to. I like lost my mind. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Yeah. I think you're really, you're going to love the beginning of this movie. Like Joe as a young woman in New York and like really experiencing the freedom and the artistic excitement of that is one of the most successful things that's captured. It's it's like, you know, that (laughs) it reminded me a lot of the um, below deck dance in Titanic, you know what I mean? Where you're just sort of like, it feels like alive and modern, but also period appropriate. That's that's. Uh, you want to go to a real party? Beginning. Is that what uh, is that yeah. what Professor Mayer says? <laughs> yeah, basically. So um, uh, I hope you enjoy that, Katie, and I hope you love it. And I hope everyone loves it. Like I was, I you know, I'm never. I always want to like love things with my whole heart. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we're so we'll get we'll have more time to talk about Little Women. Obviously, I want to talk about it once I get to see it. But to be kind of venal and awardsy about it, like as 1917 emerges out there. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, it's a really male uh, Best Picture lineup right now with like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Irishman, and now maybe 1917. Does Little Women benefit from being kind of an alternative to that? Or is it going to be like most years where they're like, oh, well, the women's pictures, they can they can win acting prizes, but not for Best Picture. I mean, I, I, think, I think it has... It has the whole the patina of a best picture nominee, absolutely. Maybe a best picture nominee from a different era, you know. In that, you know, you think about like the when things like the Age of Innocence and all that were being nominated every year. You know, there was always a mm-hmm. costume drama, um, but it does also have a contemporary sensibility. It has contemporary sort of tone, and and, and the performances, while you know believable as people in the nineteenth century, um, still feel very fresh and not for, not. It does. It's not a stuffy movie at all. Um, so I think a lot of people glom onto that. I think there's also the narrative that it's a studio. movie movie that, you know, this this is quote unquote not the kind of movie that studios put out anymore. Um, it's from a child of the industry who has, is, I don't think, given up acting, but has certain certainly made the successful leap into a sought after director, which is a narrative, you know, that people really respond to um, in Hollywood. So, yeah, I, I don't think there's any reason, you know, Joanna and, and my quibbles included, like, that this movie should not be, you know, at least in a short list of five movies. Yeah. There's also the crazy thing that you talk about studio movies. The other major studio movie contention is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is also a Sony release. Uh, they're kind of the only ones. I guess uh, Joker and Warner Brothers is another well, one. 1917. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I guess the studios are really making a rush at the very end. Um, but Sony has a very interesting uh, uh, dilemma on its hand of two big movies to figure out how to position in there. Yeah, especially when one of those movies um, came out practically six months ago, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I don't think that there's they're going to have any trouble making Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like, putting it back in people's minds, you know, in terms of voters. Uh, and they're doing more screenings. They did some this weekend. You know, they have that all worked out. But yeah, I think that um, my worry, I guess, for Little Women would be the thinking, like, if they have to divide, you know, they have to kind of divvy up their resources, they're going to be like, well, you know, it's still in theaters. People know it's out there. Like, we don't need to focus quite as much on Little Women as we do on this older thing. So I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll be curious to see how that all plays out. Yeah. It's funny to think of the ebb and flow of conversations around these awards films because I was just looking at um, my screener pile, screener brag, and um, I was like, oh, we haven't talked about Judy in a while. Like, we we anointed Renee. Renee's going to win is what we've all decided. But then, like, we just stopped talking about Judy, like, entirely. Who? Yeah. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that was the thing that Mark Harris wrote last week is that like we kind of like reserved a spot for Renee Zellweger and then Sir Ronan and Charlize Theron have kind of been given spots as well. But then you've got people like Alfre Woodard and Cynthia Revo, who's in Harriet, which has been kind of a surprisingly big hit. Um, like the, these narratives kind of solidify. But then I, I feel like it really just takes one person to be like, but wait, wait a second. It doesn't have to be that way to, to maybe right. shake things up. And the Critics Awards, when they start coming in uh, after Thanksgiving, will be a really interesting test case because I don't necessarily, I think we talked about this. I don't necessarily expect Renee Zellweger to run the table on that, but I don't know who will instead. Yeah, it's an interesting. I mean, I, I I don't I don't see Judy being a big yeah like like you, Katie, a big critics circle kind of um, winner. But like, I don't know. I think that sometimes people. I guess every voter is different, but I think that in, in, in kind of aggregate, it seems just looking at trends over the years that like the Academy likes to have at least one sorted, you know? Okay, we don't yeah, need to exactly. worry about that. You know? Yeah, well, that's so, how I felt about Brad Pitt this whole time. Like, just like, let him be the winner. Like, let's get yeah. Brad Pitt an Oscar finally and be done with it. Um, but I don't know that anyone else is going to go with that. And then you let these other interesting, you know, surges happen, happen elsewhere. Like, um, you know, Gold Derby was just, they sent out some email blasts last week being like, you know, in our rankings, J-Lo has just skipped to like number two and just, just shy of Laura Dern as the, as the favorite to win. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that was based on her getting a Spirit Award nomination and various other things. So, um, you know, I think that like there can be plenty of excitement uh, in, within the Academy Awards at large. But like, yeah, if, if people can just be like, all right, Renee's got it. There are all these great performances that we don't really want to have to sift through, so we'll just do Renee. You know, <laughs> listen, just wait till J Lo hosts the Super Bowl uh, or um, plays the uh-huh. Super Bowl uh, three days before voting closes. Laura Dern's not doing a, that. J Lo in a big like um, a, a statuette costume. <laughs> <laughs> I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, okay, let's talk about 1917, which um, mm-hmm. actually might not be a factor in the acting races. You can uh, tell us about that, Richard. But uh, it's screened over the weekend. The tweets have been pretty effusive. Uh, your review, Richard, is also pretty effusive. And I, de- I didn't necessarily think this would be something that would be for you. Maybe you didn't either. Um, well, I mean, I secretly sort of love war, war movies <laughs> if, <laughs> if they're done well. Um, and this is really, this is done very well. Um, you know, it's from Sam Mendes, who... You know, it's funny to think about Sam Mendes' career because, you know, he started in theater. He still goes back to theater once in a while. And then he broke big in the American consciousness with his first film, American Beauty, a movie that at the time was a huge deal, won a slew of Oscars, um, you know, a new sort of cool, exciting, art, arty, but but mainstream director was was anointed. Um, and then that movie's reputation has utterly soured in the 20 years since yeah. it won. Um, and it's hard to in, think in, of a movie that's only 20 years old that's aged worse. Yeah, it's real. It's 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 fascinating to to look back at that. And there are plenty of pieces out there about what happened with that movie. But um, and and it's not just because of Kevin Spacey. Um, but but then in the intervening years, Mendes like he he. He did some interesting, you know. I was looking at his IMDb. He's only made ten movies, um, and uh, which I guess is a lot for twenty years. But it, it feels like he's been around, you know, has done a lot more. But but recently he's been so preoccupied with the, his two Bond movies, Skyfall and Spectre, and so um, it, it's it's interesting to see him kind of doing a new thing, like it was seeing Nolan do something post Batman. Um, and you know that, like Nolan's film Dunkirk, this is a very you know meticulously crafted kind of the clock you know ticking kind of war thing. Um, this is World War One versus Dunkirk's World War Two. Um, but there's a lot of uh, pathos and sort of human sentiment in the movie. Um, it's not sentimental, but um, I think whereas Dunkirk was kind of a chilly sort of formal exercise, this is, has a bit more heart. But I did, as in writing the review, kind of start thinking about 
my love of war movies and really what that means. And something I kind of get at toward the end of my review of the movie is of 1917 is like, what is the beautiful war movie really doing? You know, I mean, because many would argue that it's just propping up a sort of military industrial devotion to the idea of war, the nobility of war, um, you know, and it's in honoring people who died in the conflict, like, um, you know, many of uh, Sam Mendes' grandfather's, you know, fellow troops, you can do that, but also at the same time, are you are you sort of propping up a narrative that is kind of politically useful uh, to to bad means? So I feel a little bit conflicted about 1917, um, maybe ethically in a way, but um, as a piece of filmmaking, it's kind of unimpeachable, I think. Do you feel conflicted about it in a different way than than Dunkirk? It's, I mean, there's been a million war movies, so it's almost unfair to compare it to Dunkirk. But I did think like that was similarly like beautiful about sacrifice. Like it does have kind of this rousing patriotic ending, but it didn't make me feel like it was valorizing war in the same way. Or maybe I just didn't think about it in that way. Well, I think the crucial difference between the two things is that um, Dunkirk, the the, the uh, for me, the rousing kind of moment is is that it, it's civilians you know getting in their little ships and heading across the english channel oh. to just rescue their 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 people their sons to war, their brothers, George. you know um exactly. <laughs> um whereas you know 1917 is just strictly about soldiers and while the the soldiers in the film played by george mckay and dean charles chapman from game of thrones um are are heroic and but but in a very human way um and i you certainly don't want anything to befall them. I, I think that in in these beautiful images of terrifying things, of combat, of people running from bombs and bullets and across, you know, fields strewn with bodies, like, I just wonder, like, how beautiful anything like that should be. Hmm. That's a, that's a really good point. <laughs> I, I have a, well, I have, I have a follow-up question to that. Like, the the big talking point uh, around 1917 is this like this sort of one shot um, aspect. Do you think the film needs that? Do you think that like, what do you make of that conversation? Cause uh, like what I've been seeing mostly is people being like, and maybe it's just one person, but people being like, Oh, I can see where all the edits were, you know? And I was just sort of like, then it becomes this like weird game. And I don't know. I don't know that like, I, I I guess I don't know that I feel like, uh, or or I guess I'm concerned it's overshadowing the fact that this is just like maybe a great movie and maybe it could just be a great movie without that hook, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a tricky thing with anything. I, I mean, uh, you know, that does a kind of technically audacious thing like that. You know, I think back to... Um Joe Wright, a very similar British director, uh, his movie Atonement, the adaptation of the Ian McEwan novel, a novel I love, a movie I don't love. Um, And there's this incredible seven-minute tracking shot across the beaches of Dunkirk, uh, funnily enough, um, that's an incredible feat of filmmaking. But, like, I think it's distracting because you're just kind of noticing the technical details and not feeling as much of the emotional punch as maybe you should. I don't find that that's a problem with 1917. Did I find myself playing the game of, like, oh, is that that's probably where they made a cut or whatever? Yeah, sure. But, like, for the most part, I was pretty enveloped. And I think that the crucial thing about why they did this quote-unquote real-time thing, it's kind of like Birdman, which all looks like one take but actually isn't. Um, I mean, 1917 is, is bro- broken up into two distinct parts. But anyway, um, is that what it really communicates terrifyingly is for these young men was that like an, a kind of, I mean, as normal a day as you could have during a huge war, um, you know, a quiet morning can be, you know, just 90 minutes later be a real fight for your own, for survival, you know? And I think that um, having you just kind of dialed into the the, the, the really short timeline of this movie um, you know, gets that across uh, pretty powerfully. So, Richard, you were, uh, we both saw at Toronto The True History of the Kelly Gang with uh, George McKay, which is coming out in the spring, uh, but this looks like it's going to be his, like, breakout movie. Uh, is he a standout? Are there acting standouts, or is this really, like, a giant technical accomplishment, and then Oscar Isaac is going to kind of go off of that? I mean, both McKay and Chapman are really good. Um, you know, McKay is kind of the more stoic. You know, he's a little bit older than the other character. He's been through at least one hellish battle and, and sort of has the, um, the you know, the, the trauma uh, to deal with that. You know, and he's very, he's very muted. But, um, but there are enough moments, I think, when McKay is able to, you know, express something pretty deep. Um, that yeah, he 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 does that really well. I think he's a really exciting actor who's who's really coming into his own in his late twenties. And yeah, this ought to be a big um, sort of calling card movie for him. I think a lot of 
talent people and casting agents will, who were, were either aware of him but not quite sure if he could carry a movie um, will see this and be like, yeah, yeah, we, we got to get this guy. Yeah. Uh, and the supporting cast is like a lot more famous, but mostly kind of one-offs, right? Like, like Benedict Cumberbatch is not in very much of this. Yeah, they're one-offs and I don't like them, you know, because, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I understand maybe they needed to have Benedict Cumberbatch attached or Colin Firth attached for financing reasons or something. I, I don't I don't pretend to, to know the ins and outs of that process, but like, you know, you're, you're so locked in on this thing and then there's one shot and you know, a guy with a helmet turns his head and, oh, it's Benedict Cumberbatch. And you just get that much, you know, pulled out of, of uh, the movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because the one shot is already distracting. And then you get the stars like popping in there too. Yeah, and there's one that I'm not, I don't I don't want to spoil at the end where you're like, oh come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's the queen it just shows up somebody, at the end. It was somebody I was very glad to see. There's a hint, but I also didn't want to see him in that movie in that in that particular part. Yeah. Um, all right, so Richard, is it the best picture front runner right now? Like when I looked up the tweets, I saw like multiple people doing that, which I don't know. That happens like five times a year. But is it actually as strong a contender as some of the most hyped people want you to think? Mm. I mean, <laughs> it's going to get nominated, I think. Yeah. Well, we've been kind of reserving a spot for it. Like, it, it's been on the short list. It, it's harder with um, five director slots versus, you know, the potential 10 for Best Picture. But, like, Mendez does so much in this movie, um, you know, with the help of editors and Roger Deakins, the cinematographer. Um, but, like, I just, I don't know. I find it really hard to believe that people aren't are going to watch that over the holidays and be like, eh, you know, he doesn't need it or whatever. Like, I I think that it has that. It's got a lot of technical, obviously, things um, going for it. But, you know, kind of like Dunkirk, um, which got a lot of nominations, um, but didn't win the, the, the prize for Nolan, as people once thought it would. Um, I, I don't know that war films are for everybody. And I think that they can be a really hard sit. And I think that just the kind of premise of it, the, the GSA idea of it is, is a put off to a lot of people. Um, so I think it has that to kind of combat. And I also think, and maybe this is cynical, but the fact that it's not about Americans, uh, and it's not about World War II, which is a war that, you know, everyone on at least the right side of things can look to as a quote, <laughs> righteous war. Um, World War One was a lot more complicated, uh, a lot more, I mean, pointless in a way. Uh, and so I don't really know uh, if people are going to have the emotional lock into this movie the way they might save in Private Ryan. Yeah. Which didn't win Best Picture. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, the last war movie, oh God, can anyone do this off the top of their head? The last war movie to win Best Picture? Platoon? Is it that far back? Anyway, someone someone can write it and Forrest tell us. Count. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, well, anyway, it, like I guess nineteen seventeen is another thing that will kind of thrive on box office, which will be interesting because it's opening at Christmas, opposite Little Women and um, some of the movies of the year, uh, Cats. Um, but I want to talk about box office real quick before we start looking forward, including to Cats, um, because Ford, both Ford versus Ferrari and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood uh, opened this weekend uh, against Frozen Two, but uh, obvious counterprogramming, and they both did really well. Like I feel like they got a very effective counterprogramming for you know us and people older than us who don't want to see Frozen Two. Is that um? I feel like a lot of people have been worried about A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood maybe uh, sliding under because it's a little bit quieter of a movie. Are, are we heartened by this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was really very pleasantly surprised and pleased by the performance of both of those movies, and especially after that viral Jeopardy clip of three contestants not knowing who Tom Hanks was. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. Um, yeah, it's it, like any time those movies do like Ford versus Ferrari. I am astonished by it, kind of excited by, uh, that it, that it's doing so well. Um, I don't know why I just kind of felt like that movie was not, you know, gaining any traction in, in, but then again, I, I just really need to pay better attention. A couple of my friends have been like, have you seen it? Can we see it? Have you seen it? Can we see it? And I thought they were just like weird anomaly car freaks, but apparently, <laughs> um, Ford versus Ferrari is something that people are really excited about. Who knew? Um, My parents went to see it. My parents never go to the movies. They're like, yeah, we loved it. I was like, wow, you didn't even tell me that was happening. You didn't ask me for advice. They just went. So star power? Like, what are we What are we attributing this to? It's like star power. It looks fun. It's glossy. Like, the sunglasses. Don't underestimate the sunglasses. It has this kind of, like, you don't know what you're getting because it's not, like, IP exactly. But it, it kind of has all the polish of something that, that feels like something you know you're going to enjoy. Yeah, and I think that, you know, um, perhaps the market doesn't exactly suggest this, but I would have to think at some point that, like, 
there are people all across North America who are, you know, like to go to the movies, but are kind of sick of being force-fed IP and, you know, sequels upon sequels. And, uh, you know, you look at the performance of Terminator, Dark Fate, and Charlie's Angels this fall that, you know, two franchise extensions essentially in different ways that both completely tanked. Um, And then you have these other sort of more original things, um, you know, but, but original, but yet sort of studio blessed like they have the glow of, mm-hmm. of you know accessible movies you know people are going to seek that out um you know it's funny i'm, I'm looking at the uh the the numbers.com which is the kind of new film nerd go-to for box office because of box office mojo's terrible redesign which is what i'm um, looking at right now and yeah, losing my mind yeah um and they kind of cited beautiful day in the neighborhoods 13.5 million dollars as a bit of a disappointment compared to like the effusive reviews mm-hmm. i don't really see it that way and i also think that like if there was ever a Thanksgiving movie that is not you oh, know, yeah. a big epic kind of thing like it's that I mean like I, you know we always kind of go to this scenario but like imagine being at Thanksgiving and you have to satisfy the needs of four or five six seven more people about what you're going to go see at the movies you know maybe some sullen teen will groan about that and go see whatever they want to see they'll go see Terminator Dark Fate if it's still playing anywhere. But like <laughs> people will want to see Mr. Rogers, you know, uh, and they'll want to see Tom Hanks do it. And even if people on Jeopardy don't know who he is. So I don't know. I think that like it was a good <laughs> opening salvo for that movie. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine it will not, it will only do better this coming weekend. Um, and could be one of those like steady movies that barely drops week to week and just has like a nice long run. Um, yeah. Well, if you, th- yeah, if you think about like, you know, how many of us went to go see the Mr. Rogers documentary last year and like cried our little hearts out um, in, in the middle of the summer, um, it, it, Mr. Rogers is kind of its own IP in a way. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so it has that advantage, that, that, that recognition. And yeah, I, I completely agree with Richard. This is, this is the Joanna completely agrees with Richard episode that like, I could really see this movie having just like a long tail, a really long tail. Yeah. So, I have the, I got yeah. the screener on Friday, which is the day that it opened in theaters and I have yet to watch it, but it is like the thing. It's basically the one that I'm telling my husband, like we're watching this right now, like the minute it, I can get your attention. So it's, it's high on the top of my list and I think it will be for anybody else who has a screen or two. Wait, can I embarrass myself and everyone I know by telling you what what is at the top of my screener list? Yeah. Is it Rocket Man? It's no, I mean that's I've already seen I can close my eyes and see Rocket Man. It's fine. Uh it's it's last Christmas. I was just like, oh, I could just see it and not have to go to the theater and people liked it. Uh, anyway, that's, that's, uh, you know, there, there we go. But, I wonder but then, if last Christmas would do better if it was released like now versus a few weeks ago, you know? Oh, if it was too early like for the Christmas people wave? people weren't quite hungry for it yet. Like I went to go see, we're recording on a Monday last night, a Sunday night. I went to go see um, the Broadway production of Christmas Carol that was kind of imported from London. And right. like I left and I was like, okay, it's Christmas, bitch. Like <laughs> I'm ready. Like, <laughs> and I just wonder if last Christmas had just waited that maybe they could have capt- you know, captured that sort of swell, but oh well. Yeah, I uh, I was watching the American Music Awards on Sunday night, and um, there were like all of the ads were Christmas themed. You know that time of year when like all the same ads for the same people just hurt, have snow in them. I and mean, I was like, okay, here we go. I, I, I don't know, I'm ready. I think you I think you're right that Last Christmas might have a better audience right now. Oh well. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Okay, let's, uh, before we get into the movies that are out this weekend and talk a little bit about Knives Out, uh, Richard, I think you wanted to preview uh, the either hell or wonder that's awaiting you in (laughs) mid-December when um, kind of the last two question marks of the year finally emerge. Yeah, so about this time of year, you know, if you're ever kind of getting drinks with colleagues, you start making the list of like, okay, what do I have left to see? this year, you know, of the, of the big things. And it had gotten winnowed down to like, I haven't seen Star Wars yet. I haven't seen Cats. Um, and those are the last two. Uh, when are they going to come? And so we got a Star Wars invite. Yay, yay, yay. 
And then still nothing from cats, nothing from cats. And finally, I just was like, all right, I can't take it anymore. So I emailed <laughs> publicists at Universal. I was like, all right, look, when are you guys showing this movie to me? Um, they are screening, in New York at least, I'm sure it's the same um, in LA and probably elsewhere. They are screening Cats and Star Wars on the same day. <laughs> um, and so both movies are doing a morning screening and both are doing a night. The thinking being, if you have to go to one in the morning, you can go to the other at night. Um, <laughs> which hasn't presented this insane Sophie's Choice of like, which do I see? Which movie do I want to have seen first? You know, <laughs> And obviously the answer to that is Cats. Yes. Um, but because of the way the review embargo situation works, I have to prioritize Star Wars because that embargo is up sooner. So I'll have, like, just to give myself maximum time to write each review. Um, but, like, I was texting with friend of the podcast, David Sims, other friend of the podcast, Ezra Duckerman, and I was just like, but, like, I'm going to be agonizing the whole time during Star Wars knowing that, like, however far, how many feet away <laughs> there are people watching <laughs> so- cats, and I'm not. Um, so I-, I don't know why they're doing this to us. These, I mean, they're competing studios, so what do they care? But like, um, yeah, it's good that December 17th, a day that she'll live in infamy. Oh my God, I can't wait to hear like, like, what if you like cats better than Star Wars? Like, what if this creates a really insane don't, contrast? Katie. <laughs> Katie, no. <laughs> Katie, no. <laughs> what if I get confused in writing my review and someone's like, wait, Kylo Ren fights someone named griddle bone like what laser cats just like post that youtube like that snl digital shorts laser cats and you're like this this is what i saw today well lucky free star wars nerds are very forgiving and understanding so if you mess something up i'm sure no one will uh (laughs) no one will make a big deal about it um okay let's let's talk about knives out because uh, we have this interview with ryan johnson it's out in theaters this weekend um we uh, i saw it in toronto and i've been one of many people kind of both raving about it and trying not to say anything about it and we're not going to spoil it um because i think if you know anything about it you know that it's a really twisty mystery that doesn't deserve to be spoiled but uh i don't know what else do we want to say to get people to go see knives out um you were you were mentioning that you thought it might be a good like please everyone kind of um film to t- you know take the whole family to and i think that's true it's it's i i think the way it's cast in that regard is so clever because there's like someone for every demographic like uh hey are you young and you like 13 reasons why Catherine lankford's here hey you like marvel movies chris evans is here hey you like jamie lee curtis john johnson and all you know so like I'm, i don't think that's how why he cast it but i'm just saying like i think there are a lot of people who are excited for knives out because they're like oh it's the it's the trailer where chris evans swears that's fun um, <laughs> i will say Catherine Langford or Jamie Lee Curtis presented together at the American Music Awards uh, last night. So like the, the, the cross generational demo is strong. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So I like the cast is incredible. Um, you know, Daniel Craig doing like, you know, going to 11. It's just uh, a really fun, fine time at the movies. So um, I really encourage people to see it. What do you think, Richard? Well, I think that, you know, this isn't a spoiler, I don't think, but like there is one scene that in, in a very kind of Ryan Johnson archway, crystallizes a a debate, a political debate happening right now in terms of like, so if you're having Thanksgiving and you're sick of one side yelling at the other side about whatever, um, you will get the catharsis of seeing some version of that on screen in my show. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think that it's, it's, you know, again, talking about like, quote unquote, counter programming. um, This is a movie that is not based on anything. It's new. Um, it has actors you know doing things you haven't seen them do before, probably. Um, certainly in the case of Daniel Craig. Um, and I don't know, there's a like appeal there. And I, I don't know, I think that like, I used to do these things, not, I don't think I did it for VF, but other places I wrote uh, in years past where I would like, do like Thanksgiving or holiday movie recommendations, you know, based on like your sort of situation. Like, I think that this would be a good like, all the adult cousins go see it, you know, yeah, and yeah. maybe like the hip aunt or whatever. Like, I think it's that kind of thing where like maybe the little ones go to Frozen 2 and you go to this. And I think it really satisfies um, a certain kind of merry darkness uh, that people find themselves in this time of year. Uh, and yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. I've seen it twice now. So um, and it has not dimmed in my uh, estimation. I've also seen it twice. I saw it this because uh, they did like a little preview in you know this past weekend. They released it early in some markets, um, and so I saw it in the Alamo Draft House in Denver over the weekend, actually with a bunch of podcast listeners, and that was really fun. But um, I liked it even better the second time because the first time I think I got you know because I, I have read and you'll hear me talking to Ryan about this. Basically, I just like nerded out about Agatha Christie with Ryan Johnson and musicals. I apologize for nothing, but like. <laughs> um, 
because I'm such like an Agatha Christie weirdo, I uh, my my brain was like too engaged in the twists and turns of the Who Done It and and either feeling ahead or behind or whatever it was the first time I saw it, and uh, the second time through I was just able to enjoy what everyone was doing performance wise, like just like sit back and enjoy all the nutty performances, and it was just like Don Johnson, the Twinkle. I'm just I'm here for the. Don Johnson is on. So, yeah. um, and a good yeah. year for, was, and a good year for uh, what we said, Dakota's dads for him and Antonio Banderas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The year of Dakota's dads. And so yeah, also yeah. if you were looking for, I mean, this could apply to anyone of any gender identity, but like if you're looking for some great, um, winter wear jackets, Lakeith mm. Stanfield wears this beautiful, yes. I don't know, wool sort of number that I, I'm obsessed with. And I'm sure it costs $4,000, but like, um, and yeah, Chris it, Evans scarves. Oh God. And sweater. His sweat. He's yeah. A, a sweat, the yeah. cable net. Yeah. yeah. It's good. It's good mm-hmm. clothing. It's a nice Massachusetts filmed uh, movie, um, which I appreciate. <laughs> as I ever. didn't know that was the theme of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I'm sad because my parents don't live in Massachusetts anymore. So I'm just trying to cling to my identity <laughs> as a asshole. <laughs> Um, okay, Joanna, so anything else you want to tell us about your conversation with uh, Knives Out director and writer Ryan Johnson? Um, no, just that he's an utter delight. And one thing I will say is if you're if you're deciding what to go see at the, the box office, or at the box office, at the movie theater this weekend, or um, Ryan has said <laughs> that if Knives Out does well, maybe this will become a franchise and we will see Daniel Craig solve more crimes. And I'm just saying, like, that is the best motivator I could possibly. He's also promised us a Chris Evans musical. So like Ryan wow. is just out here He's making trying a lot of promises. To give us, trying to give us the content we want, but we need to show up to the movie theater and give this a good box office push. So I really encourage, you know, you're not going to get Ford versus Ferrari too, but you might get knives out too. So I'm just saying. You know, I should also note we it. we talked a couple weeks ago about how Tracy Letts became the first uh, husband wife pair we'd had on the podcast because we'd had Carrie Coon, and now we've had Ryan and his wife Karina Longworth in one month. So we're doing well. Listen, it's a it's a new Hollywood dynasty. Bringing in and, all of our favorite power couples. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's listen to your conversation with Ryan Johnson. So we are pleased to welcome to the podcast, Ryan Johnson. Ryan, thank you so much. Hey, Joe, great to be here. <laughs> for doing it. You are a huge fan of the whodunit genre. What do you think is the appeal, like the enduring appeal of that kind of story? I mean, I think there's a, there's a couple things about it. I mean, um, first of all, it's got a great kind of like, you know, when you like eat a dish at a restaurant and it's got like two opposing flavors that go well together or when you eat a Reese's peanut butter cup it's got kind of the the cerebral puzzle box element of it of the mystery and then it's also something that's built around the joy of characters and of it lends itself to these big fun personalities of these cast of suspects right so the combination of those two things I think is really fun there's also I mean it's interesting to me, like, uh, you know, the golden age of the genre, uh, arguably, I guess, was back kind of in the 20s and 30s, I guess. Yeah. And in the 30s, when it was really taking root, you think about the state of the world back then and how much moral uncertainty there was yeah. in the world. And there was, that's something that's very distinct to the whodunit genre is the moral certitude of it. It has this comforting thing where... The world is thrown into chaos by this crime and the detective comes in and you know that the good person detective is going to set the world right by the end of it. Figure it out, restore moral order, and the bad person will go to jail. And you can see why yeah, <laughs> that felt right really, now. really good in the 30s. And I think that's also, that feels really, really good right now. Yeah. So um, I think that's also an element of it. And that's something that's, distinguishes it also from other kinds of detective fiction, you know, like, like Hammond and, and, and Chandler, there, right. there's always a moral murkiness. There's no moral murkiness in whodunits. It's right. always very clear. Agatha Christie has a lot of clarity. On, yeah. Agatha on Christie, John Dixon Carr, Dorothy Sayers, Sayers all of the great yeah. ones. Yeah. Yeah. They all, there's always a, a, a clarity to the right and wrong and there's a cleanness to it, um, which, you know, it's maybe more of a fantasy, but as Billy Joel said, sometimes a fantasy is all you need. 
Do you have a favorite Agatha Christie novel? I mean, I think even though it's kind of non-traditional in terms of whodunit, I think And Then There Were None is her best book. Um, But uh, my kind of two favorites are uh, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, where she, I don't know if you're, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was so, uh, I mean, just because of the audaciousness of the solution. Yeah. Which, um, yeah, which is, I mean, is so audacious that even at the time, lots of people called foul on it and people said, this is cheating. And, um, which is fascinating to me. Um, but it's also a great Poirot book. And then I'm a really big fan of Curtin, uh, the final yeah. book, which was published posthumously. Yeah. And which um, is Poirot's last case. Yeah. And it also has this, it was, you know, at the end of her crazy, but it was, it was, you know, one of the last things that it was the last thing that was published. I forget when she wrote it. I think she wrote it like a little bit earlier, a little bit earlier, yeah, yeah. but it's, equally audacious and crazy in terms of the gambit that it, you know, that it attempts. And uh, the solution is fascinating and the way that it ties up Poirot's entire arc and what it kind of makes him do at the end of the book. You can see I'm talking around a lot of things, but it's, uh, it's gorgeous. And it's also the paperback cover of it was just entirely black with curtain in this great font yeah. which we ripped off for knives out the knives out font that's the the, that's the curtain font the curtain font and and it's had this oil painting of a guy who's supposed to be poirot and it was the creepiest book cover in the world as i a, love those late christie ones they're very creepy and there's a lot of you know like Halloween. when the counterculture yeah. sort of gets in there and and you can tell that yeah absolutely and you there's a darkness that creeps into yeah. it was it halloween story there was the one that was the halloween party it's like a girl who's drowned like bobbing for apples it's really yeah really dark. when like the yeah. drug scenes get in there and then there's a lot of like spiritualism that sort of gets into her later stuff too well, that i think that, is and that speaks to how much she was always engaged with the culture right. that she was in and how she was always using these characters and these kind of caricatures she was creating to talk about the world that she was in at the time um, and that was another thing with Knives Out is, is trying to I think a lot of times kind of the musty old tropes from old whodunits are seen as that when in reality she was writing about very present character types. Right. So the idea of doing that in 2019 with character types we'll recognize today that, that was part of it. Yeah. And I definitely want to get to that. Some of the politics that are in this without, we, we want to talk about this movie without spoiling it for people. Yes, so uh, <laughs> talking around things, but uh, yeah. So before I get, before I move off Dame Agatha, who I just love, um, I'm curious when you want to do something like this, which is playing in the genre and homage to her work and other people who have done, who done it, how do you balance between homage and you know, not falling into parody or pastiche or anything. Right. Well, I mean, I think for me, it's the same way that I um, kind of come at any genre that I'm trying to do that I love, which is uh, the first step is kind of figuring out for me what I essentially love about it. Right. Um, Not just examples of it that I love that I want to like copy or do karaoke of, but, but really what the essential pleasure of the thing is for me. And, um, and then I set that as my goal and I find my own kind of path towards that and, and just kind of trust blindly a little bit that if I'm doing that, it's not going to be the same path that somebody else has taken before. You know, it's going to be unique. And and also, I, I, you know, for as much as I love, you know, I don't know how you said, genre engineering, I guess, genre wonkiness, I've, I've found I, I can't sit down to write something if I don't also have a, uh, um, you know, something I on my mind, something I care about. Not like a message or something like that, but just something I want to grapple with that's actually in my heart at that moment that the genre mechanics click together with, like two gears coming together and that they complement each other. That's like an essential ingredient yeah. for me. And so. you've talked a lot about the challenge of injecting heart into this story, that it's not just like, witty line ratings and obfuscation but um how do i put the heart in so what what was it to you was it the election like what was it to you that really drove you to this well i mean it's 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 less fun to talk about than it is to see in the movie. And there's a reason it's one element in this bigger movie as sure. opposed to 
um, you know, an essay that I wrote about something. So in that way, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll probably talk around this, around this a little bit too, but it's, uh, you know, to, to, to a certain extent, it's about, um, you know, even, 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 cause I've been, also I've been cooking this thing up for like 10 years. Right. And so the basic foundation of what's, what it's about predates all the craziness that's happening right sure. now. It wasn't, I sat down, I read it, obviously I'm trying to write it for 2019. So I'm plugging in all the stuff that we're arguing about today. But for me, the essence of it was really about, I mean, for lack of a better word, I guess about privilege, you know, and mm, about how yeah. we rewrite our own narratives so easily. And all of us, I'm, guilty as as anyone of this we once we kind of get in the castle we rewrite our own narratives to pull the drawbridge up behind us and try and pretend that mm -hmm. <laughs> that we, we were always here we were always here yeah and we're here because of who we essentially are not because of circumstances that got us here yeah and that doesn't mean not taking pride in your accomplishments. That doesn't mean not celebrating the fact that you're in the castle. It's awesome. You're in the castle. But that also means leaving that drawbridge open and recognizing the people that are still making their way in that you had a lot of help. You had a lot of circumstances on your side and not everybody has those. And um, that to me was more the essence of it as opposed to any very specific political circumstance. You right. Yeah. You didn't hear something on the news and go, aha, I yeah. must write my, <laughs> my is, masterpiece. This is where I change everybody's mind <laughs> yeah. and fix the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, something I love about uh, personally growing up and reading a lot of Agatha Christie, um, and I, I would recommend it to anyone who wants to you know, if they're, if you're young and listening and want to become a writer, I think Agatha Christie is a great thing because she is, yes, rinsing and repeating a lot of things, but always doing it in an inventive way that helps you understand how story works. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And, um, so I'm wondering if you learned anything from her about, I don't know, specifically the, the art of misdirection, obfuscation and how to land a story that, I don't know, not trying to be smarter or really deeply outwit your audience, but respect your audience's intelligence, but try to keep them in the game. Yeah. I mean, she's, she does not get enough credit as a writer. I think, I think people kind of, you know, she gets kind of I, I dismissed as too strong a word, but she does. People tend to view her books as crossword puzzles. And the truth is she is a fantastic writer. Her books are also hilarious. They have the, the, the characters that she's drawing, they are elevated characters. They are slightly caricatures. It's not like deep character studies of anybody, but they also are always grounded and always have an element to them where you can identify with them. Right. Um, and, uh, and like I said, they're always plugged into the world, the, the, the society that she's living in, in terms of, yeah, in terms of specific lessons, I guess for me, that was that that's the big one that I, take when I revisit Christie is how much the books for all their plotting and all the puzzle book elements of them, how much they live or die based on how much you want to be engaged with the characters in them. And that her books also always have a character who is kind of what the character of Marta is in this, where there's always a character who is like the heart of it, mm -hmm. who you are, um, and usually Poirot has, it's the character that Poirot has like a little heart to heart with at some point in yeah. the book. And sometimes that person is the killer, you know, in Death on the Nile, that's, I'm not so, shit, I don't want to give away. The <laughs> it's Mia Farrow. It's Mia Farrow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, very, very often, yeah. you know, that, that and, and you get the sense, this tragic sense of foreshadowing that Poirot senses this and is trying to stave it off. And so, and, and even that is like, that turns it from something where it's just the bad guy getting caught into something where it's much, always much more powerful if you can, relate to the motives that um and that's the other interesting thing that she always does or she does very often i should say is the person who gets killed at least the first person who gets killed the main person that sets it all off is never a sympathetic character and who you identify with in the first part of the book is not the poor person who gets killed right. you actually identify with all the people who had motives to kill this person because yeah. they're the motives need to make sense and so um and that's fascinating. And then there's always 
a secondary the secondary person who gets killed who is the real tragic one right and that's usually the murder that happens on on the page like you're usually that's the one where it's like you're with the person they're doing laundry and then yeah. they she does that trick where it's like he, she turns around and says, oh, I didn't expect to see you here. Wait, what? And then she's she's strangled, you know, yeah. or something. And it's usually, that's the one where you're, you're, it's like the horror movie kill where you don't want them to get killed and die. Or you're like, oh, this is serious. Yeah. This and, is real. It's not, it's not who died before the book started. So it's, it's sort of detached. It's like, and it also prime, primes you for wanting that person to get caught yeah. at the end. Yeah, so, yeah. um, yeah, now, now mean, it's cruel. Exactly. Sort of yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, that's, that's the moment when I was watching Knives Out. That's the moment where I really realized that, that you had read as much Agatha Christie as you had when I realized that the character of Marta was one of these sort of intrepid young female characters that Agatha Christie does so well. And I almost feel like she Trojan horsed them into a lot, like, that she wanted to have a young female detective, but that is not what she did. She had Elke yeah. Poirot, she had Marple, but she sort of snuck all these young women into her There's stories. always one element of yeah. it that's like the, and uh, yeah, Curtin has one as well. It's interesting. Yeah. And uh, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the uh, sort of the desire to put the way we live now into this story the way that Agatha Christie would. There's this scene, I will not spoil it, that uh, a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people refer to as the Twitter argument, you know, <laughs> uh, the Twitter argument scene. Um, and I know that you've talked about that sort of specifically as once again, trying, that's the way a lot of us communicate now. So it's very real and now, but are you given how fraught Twitter can be for any creative, especially one who's touched a major property. Is there any sort of exercising that happens when you get to put that on screen and say, this is what this looks like? Well, know? I mean, it's funny because that specific scene, it's um, my experience and where that's coming from is actually not Twitter. Oh, it's, really? No, it's, it's, I have people that I'm very close to and that I love dearly in my life and we feel very differently about a lot of things that are happening in the news. So that is that those are, that's actually much more based on uh, real life interactions I've had with 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 different folks. Okay. And so um to me, I mean I guess that extends to Twitter. We're all arguing about the same stuff and you can make an argument that the degree to which real life is now being influenced by the way everything is being framed online in these black and white sort of right. choose your side type ways um that that's a very real thing, I guess. But uh yeah, I mean I yeah, and it's 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 something that's so pervasive and it's so uh it touches if you're uh, it's tough because you, it's easy to say if you're online today you've experienced this in some way shape or form it does make if i feel like if and you don't have to have be in the middle of the politics fray and you don't have to have made a star wars movie to have experienced it. if you, I, I feel like in 2019 if you're if you're a, a you know if you're a a baker and you make a tweet about bread that's controversial you're right. going to have people screaming at you and your contents that why don't you why don't you die right uh, or if you assert a certain kind of halloween candy is the best and then all of a sudden oh it just God. becomes yeah whatever it becomes it's, yeah. ju it's just the waters that we're all swimming in right now and and i think that does bleed into our everyday life to where even if you get off of social media you find the discourse in just regular conversation yeah. you know at, at least starts that way and then gets more human hopefully the the longer you engage with someone anyway but it's all to say that you know it's it wasn't so much like um i don't know like trying to get back at it but it was very much like, God, this is this is what happens when everyone has a few drinks and starts talking about this stuff. Yeah, well, it devolves into everyone just telling each other each shit. You know? Yeah, and it it goes back to that sort of lack of moral clarity that you were talking about in terms of like, um, what I feel like right now is we're so bifurcated and like everyone's on their sides and are certain that their side is the morally correct side. And then right. sort of how do you find the center of that? You know? Yeah. And it's, it's tough. Cause you don't, you know, it's, I don't think very much with the movie didn't want to like both sides, any issue or something. The movie right. definitely has a point of view, but right. it also, I think it also, I, I hope like, you know, also indicates that sort of the, the arguments that are being had and the positions that are being taken don't really speak to the true, the true problem at the heart of all of this, you know, and it's, it's a, a problem that I think applies to humans, you know, not to one side or the other side. And so trying to get at that, I think is a more interesting thing. 
When I talked to Brad Bird about Incredibles 2 on this podcast, I just went rogue and talked to him about musicals the whole time. So um, I know that Let's you, go rogue. <laughs> well, I know you've been talking about musicals uh, in these various interviews. I know you, Chris Evans has agreed to do a musical with you. And, and I believe in Canada that's a legally binding Legally contract. binding, man. Yeah. We didn't even have to sign an app. Yeah, that's just, Canadian law. It would be impolite <laughs> to not make it now. Right. Like, that's illegal in Canada. So what, um, you know, I know you've been noodling maybe doing a movie musical for a long time. And we're currently in a little bit of a resurgence of movie musicals. What's going on right now in movie musicals that you are really digging? And what, you know, you're so good at saying like, okay, but I miss this that we used to do. What kind of thing do you want to bring back? I mean, I, so it's funny. I'm, I'm not, I somehow have not seen Greatest Showman. I really need to see it. I have a feeling I'm going to love it, um, but I haven't seen it. And, and uh, what are some other very recent examples? I feel like, like La La Land. Oh, sort I really, of, yeah, I enjoyed La yeah, La Land a lot. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, so, I mean, for me, most of my touchstones in terms of movie musicals I love I, I are, are from back in the day. Right. I, um, I mean, talking about Frank Oz, I think that, you know, uh, who does a cameo in this movie was very gracious to come and do a cameo in Knives Out. He's great. He's so lovely, man. But he, I mean, he made, I think, you know, Little Shop of Horrors, I think is one of the, yeah. one of the all time greats. Um, maybe my favorite movie musical is actually, I mean, yeah, this is very, this is a bit controversial, but, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar is kind might stealth be one of the really? maybe, yeah, because I mean, it's so of its time, but it also, it, it, it looks the way it sounds and it, it feels the way it sounds it and does. the energy to it is so plugged in and electrified yeah. and it's got such conviction and, um, it's funky and crazy and it goes for it. It's completely immersed in what it's doing. Yeah. And um, the movie, yeah, it kind of doesn't give a fuck. It just does it. And it's it's amazing. Um, anyway, but uh, so... But yeah, so a lot, of, a lot of my musical references kind of go back to that. And I don't know. I'd have to... I'd have to dig into it and really figure out, like, do that kind of part of the process. Where Deep I genre out, research. Yeah, yeah. Or not even research, kind of researching myself, kind of figuring yeah. out, okay, what do I really love about this and right. what would I want to, you know, uh, what would I really want to pull out of it? Yeah. I know that you and um, your producing partner, Ram, have been talking a lot about like, okay, potentially Knives Out could be the beginning of a franchise, but if it were, um, the film would have to perform really well sort of at the box office from the jump. Uh, go see Knives Out opening weekend, everybody. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this is this is the kind of original concept, yeah. mid-level movie that so many of us are bemoaning the, the lack of the death of. Yeah. As someone who makes these kinds of movies more often than not, yeah. um, what are the pressures of wanting to put something like out, that out in 2019? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I I think that uh, I I tend to kind of I don't know. I can see the point. I can see what everyone's talking about, but I don't tend to engage in much hand hand wringing okay. about this stuff. Mm -hmm. I feel like I don't know. I feel like there's. I get to the end of every year. I look at my top ten list, and I feel like I could put twenty movies on there. I feel like there's a lot of stuff that, and I love big movies. Obviously, I love big franchise stuff, but. Um, but most of but I, the most of the movies that I love every year are the more mid-sized and small stuff, and I see tons of interesting stuff getting made every single year. Uh, and I mean, the tough thing is getting people out to see them, I guess. Right. But um, but I don't know. You can't. I don't know. The answer is not to scold people for not going to see the no. right movies. It's like it's it's you, the answer is to you know make stuff that hopefully people will like, and then and then try and show them what's good about it to motivate them to get out to see it you know um i definitely don't feel like um oh god this type of movie is dying what do we i don't feel like we're i'm hovering over the body trying to do cpr right. on something i feel like uh interesting movies are alive and well and there's tons of great ones being made every year and um and i think people should go see them not because they need to save cinema but because they're so many great movies out there and there's so much and you're going to have an experience that you never expected and you're going to see it with a crowd and that's one of the things with this movie is it was kind of manufactured to be seen with a crowd yeah it's something where it's a ride and it's hopefully funny and you're gonna you're gonna get a reaction with the audience around you and and uh yeah yeah so yeah. 
not to make you engage in one more hand wringing question, but I think the the reason that a lot of people are going to some place like Netflix is because they want to make this kind of movie and feel like a lot of people are going to see it. Um, do you feel sort of the siren song of of Netflix at any point, or are you are you like firmly in the theatrical camp? Or I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, look, I love movies in theaters. I love mm-hmm. going to see them in theaters as a movie fan. I love making them so that people can go see them in theaters. So I I will you know, I will beat that drum as long as I possibly can. Um, but you know, at the end of the day also we're, we're, I don't know. And this has been something that, um, since the, since the birth of cinema, but sorry, but since the birth of cinema, it's been evolving in terms of how we take it in, what it is, who it appeals to. It's something that has constantly been falling apart and being rebuilt. And I think that, for me, I feel like as opposed to latching on to this medium seen in this way is what I do and that's the only pure expression of it, I think we're all, I don't know, this is that's the most pretentious word in the world, but we're all storytellers. We are all storytellers. We're doing, no, I'm not... I'm not making something that's on this format to be seen this way in this kind of environment. I'm I'm telling stories. I'll keep telling them however people, you know, mo- however I can get most eyes on them to, for people to go see them. You know, yeah. that's what's important to me is for somebody to sit down and have an experience watching the thing that I made, you know, not dictating that they do it in a certain way. So, right. um, but you know, that having been said, like I said, I love the theatrical experience. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's sticking around. I think people are still going to movies and I think they still will, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, as as I can see the appeal of Netflix, I watch a lot of stuff on Netflix. But Adam Sandler murder mysteries, I loved it. I loved it. It was so did. much fun. It was so much fun. I'm also in the tank for Sandler. I love that guy. I'll watch. I'll watch all his comedies and laugh my ass off. There's just something about him that hits my pleasure button. But and oh my god, uncut, uncut gems. gems yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. All right. So, uh, but no, it's it's a. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that answered the question or not. But, sure. Yeah. Uh, last question. Uh, is there anything coming down the pike in theaters that you are excited yourself to see or for other people to see? Well, I, I saw a couple things at TIFF. Yeah. That are, so Uncut Gems is mm-hmm. is up there at the top of the list. Um, the Safdie Brothers new movie was starring Sandler, and it's absolutely incredible. It is just like a lightning bolt it's going into your brain. It's, it's ridiculous. And that's, it's also something you should see in the theater if you can. It's, it's an experience. Marriage Story, I think was incredible. Yeah. I think Noah Baumbach is just in this zone because the, the Meyerowitz story is the last one that he I did loved it. with yeah. Sandler. Yeah. I think I, that movie should have gotten so much more attention. I think that was, well, that's the Netflix argument. Like is some, does something disappear know, if it's, it's a, a Netflix danger. movie, you know? But then also I, part of me, just I mean, getting back into talking about the Netflix thing, just part of me feels like, how do I define this a bit? Like, am I actually thinking like, okay, you put something on Netflix, you don't get the marquee, you don't get like the newspaper articles with the ads or whatever, you don't get that element of it, but are exponentially more people actually watching, watching it? Yeah. Is, is it just, is it my ego of just wanting that movie name on the marquee and wanting the... Right. Um, and is the reality that you know if you if more people are actually watching your movie does that is that something that matters you know so anyway but uh, marriage story absolute masterpiece I think absolutely incredible and Scarlet is incredible and Adam is phenomenal so in good it. Laura Dern Laura Dern yeah and Ray Liotta oh my yeah. god yeah, I just think it's absolutely amazing and I hope that it. I hope it breaks out. I feel like he's in this really special place right now where he's just kind of at at the top of his game. I hope, I hope people really discover it. Yeah, yeah. excellent. Well, yeah. thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, it was great talking. I appreciate it. That does it for this week's episode. Uh, we'll be back next week after our respective Thanksgiving holidays uh, with lots more movies and awards and everything else to talk about. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com writing about a lot of these movies uh, and on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and happy Thanksgiving, everybody.
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.